When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right now, at CBUS, we're building a new future for all of us. By building new projects in property, investing in infrastructure, and putting millions into Australian businesses, we're not only helping to create around 100,000 jobs, we're strengthening the economy. And with a history of strong, long-term performance, we're building a better, more secure future for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Week Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you for another week. Jeff, as I welcome you, I can see that you are in our nation's capital. Therefore, the third and final one-day international between Australia and India, then a T20 after that. Heaps of cricket this week in South Africa and Cape Town. There's been T20s between England's men and South Africa. The Women's Big Bash League finale, Jeff, which you were at in Sydney over the course of last weekend. We have an interview with Fiona Boller, one of our very, very favourite people in cricket, is Fee. She's written a book on the history of women's cricket in Australia called Clearing Boundaries. So uh, an interview with her in a little bit. And Jeff, my good news this morning, and the reason I'm in good shape, is that after my flight got cancelled two more times over the weekend at three o'clock this morning, it was all resolved and touch wood and touch everything else and turn around three times and spit or whatever it is. <laughs> it looks like I'll somehow get to Australia by the middle of this week or I'll be leaving in the middle of this week, which means I'll make it to Adelaide for the first Test match. So I'm in a particularly good mood. Turn around every now and then you get a little bit anxious and you text me at yes. two in the morning being like, oh God, oh God, it's all, no. Um, so look, I, I'm impressed that you're willing to go on the record on a record show and say that you will be flying on Wednesday, given that, you know, that's 48 hours away and, and who knows what yes, might happen between now and that's then. That's true. That's true. Although I've said to Rachel, I'm not going to be pessimistic or negative about this. I've just, I've got to believe that what happened on Sunday, which is when the South Australian government extended their ban for arrivals until the 7th of December, thus killing off uh, my flight, my ninth flight cancellation through the course of the last four months, five months, whatever, longer than that. But I've just got to believe that this flight to Perth is going to take off from Heathrow. It's going to get there the way that it's meant to get there. There's not going to be any delays that I've experienced the sort of 95th minute deep into extra time. Goals ended up in the back of my net and I've somehow dragged it back and scored a goal in the 96th. And I, I've got to believe that the whistle's going to blow <laughs> and, and, I'm, and and that is it. This this might be the most literal application ever of the song line, I believe I can fly. Um, <laughs> as you... <laughs> 
as you try to stay upbeat <laughs> over the next couple of days. So, yeah, look, I yeah. hope it works. Uh, I, I hope it comes off. Um, I am in Canberra, as you said. I, I saluted all the way in um, in the back of the cab, sang the national anthem. No, I didn't. It's, it's a shit song. We should really get a better song. We've got... We've got good songs kicking around. Just pop one of them in instead. But, yeah, the, the thing that I noticed sonically on arriving to this apartment, I'm in the suburb of Campbell. That might mean something to you. I, I don't know anything about Canberra. <laughs> um, there is so... There were so many cicadas. There was a wall of sound of cicadas who've all come out for the summer, obviously. And they've stopped because the sun's just gone down. But I was thinking it might be very difficult recording a podcast with this, like, many hundred strong... Just constantly in the background. It's quite pleasant in a way, but I think it might have got a bit wearing um, if it had gone on through the entire show. I wish this was a visual medium because the sunsets in Canberra are something else. Whenever you, whenever we talk about the ACT, I just have that pang. I do love it there. National anthem. Our colleague, our colleague from the from the News Corp papers, Courier Mail, Robert Craddock. Uh, I think he even wrote about this earlier this year, saying that. I Am Australian should be the national anthem. And I think because of that prompt, I, I was listening to it with Winnie quite a bit when she was born, and I've, I sing it to her occasionally now. Can you imagine a scenario? I mean, I, I should add, if you're a, a listener from England, I Am Australian is a song written by the Seekers, well, a member of the Seekers and performed by them later in their career, which in the mid-'90s was almost like the quasi-national anthem. But can you imagine a scenario where we would replace... Advanced Australia Fair with an anthem which includes all those references to the Indigenous settlers before <laughs> white, before uh, colonial rule. I mean, there's just no way in the world that the the current government would ever go for anything uh, that would make that kind of reference, given the way conservative politics has, has evolved in the last 15 years in Australia. Well, we also currently have a national anthem with that the line in it that many people have pointed out that says, for those who've come across the sea, we've boundless plains to share, uh, except when we lock you up on Hell Island for the rest of your life if, if you want so that bit's implied there's a there's an asterisk there so we, we're not any well, stranger that, to, to having well, lines fix, that, don't, that don't match that's the fix isn't it the other fix is that they play this we, we use the second verse of advanced australia fair which is far more you know far meatier the problem there of course being that there's that inherent contradiction about boundless planes to share which again the last 15 years or so not so many boundless planes to share as far as the open-mindedness of the well not not the entire australian population far from it but from a significant chunk of people could we just go second verse same as the first (laughs) (laughs) underneath the southern cross i stand I mean, you know, it's probably more honest at this point. Uh, the only, the other song-related uh, thing that I noticed today with, you know, I, th- I, th- I assume it's Irving Berlin who wrote the old, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato thing. And you know how everyone pays the shit out of that song because then it has the potato-potato line and you're like, no one says potato. There's no subset of people mm. who say potato. You just couldn't find a rhyme. I realised today that you could actually make that work with cicada, cicada and pop that in after the tomato tomato <laughs> and that's actually a much better fit so if anyone's communing with um irving berlin on the ouija board over the weekend um maybe pop in the suggestion jeff i, I said we've got tons of cricket to get through which is a good thing uh, that's not always been the case on on the final word in, in 2020 before we get there though one thank you to a patron of ours uh, david kaufman now 
when we went to the UAE in 2018 and, um, you know, as most people who are listening to this show would know, bought the rights, called the series. It's a great story. There's been a, a, document, a radio documentary made about it by the ABC a couple of years ago, a number of lovely pieces of writing as well if you want to learn about that story. But over the last two years, I've been kind of gutted that we didn't have any audio from it. We had a couple of clips that were, that were put on social media at the time, which, of course, we saved and, and treasured, um, including the, fu- the final ball at Dubai and so on. But in terms of the actual coverage, it had just disappeared. We, yeah, we, we thought it had been saved. It hadn't been saved. Needn't worry about that. But the point is, is that we thought it was gone until David Kaufman dropped me a DM in the Patreon inbox this week to tell me that, well, he, he suggested to me that, oh, why don't you put up... Um, some clips from that series. Why don't you put up a couple of days of cricket on the podcast feed? People might really enjoy that. I replied and said, I'd love to, David. I'd love to share that audio. If we had it, it doesn't exist. And he said, what do you mean? I've got it. I, 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 once I learnt you were doing this uh, Wisdom Test Match cricket thing, I saved all of the final day at Dubai. I think he saved five hours of the final day at Dubai and the entire second test match. So um, he's a historian, uh, David, and he, and he said uh, that um, it's, he collects uh, cricket audio from across the years. And now uh, the great news is that something that we thought we lost and something that means an awful lot to both of us <laughs> is there again. And having, um, from my perspective, having recently sat through the extremely long movie called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, directed by Charlie Kaufman, David Kaufman is definitely my favourite Kaufman of the year. There's, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, he's, he's a mile ahead on, on those stakes. So, yeah, God bless people who retain uh, things for their archives because sometimes those archives are uh, are entirely needed, which also comes up in the interview with Fiona Boland later in the show where a, a massive archive of, of cricket photos was recovered and saved with a lot of photos of very early women's cricket, which didn't exist, which, which was the inspiration to put that book together. Yeah, good stuff. Can't wait to hear from Fee. I might actually look into uh, grabbing some of that audio and potentially putting it on our Patreon page. Uh, for those who, again, who didn't listen to it at the time, there might be a way in which we can we can uh, reduce some of the file sizes and, and get it live, and I'll look into that during the week. So, again, thank you to David Kaufman. Jeff, let's get into it. India, Australia, One Day Internationals. We said last week it kind of crept up on us, uh, but, gee, two very high-scoring games, almost facsimiles uh, as far as the, the, the final margins were concerned and the way they petered out at the end and the Steve Smith hundreds, the, the Glenn Maxwell pyrotechnics uh, towards the end of Australia's innings and runs from Warner and Finch both times around as well. What, what did you take from it? What's your main sort of top line reflection having been at the SCG over the weekend? It's a, f- a few extraordinary reflections really. Um, one, how disappointing it is that David Warner's picked up this injury given the way that partnership with Aaron Finch is going. I, I wrote about that from the first game on, on the ABC site and we were talking about the game sneaking up on us, but I was talking about it also sneaking up just how prolific that partnership has been. They're over 3,500 runs together now, which puts them eighth, I think, in terms of all-time opening partnerships in one-day cricket. They're 21st overall in terms of all partnerships, you know, and there are some absolutely iconic yeah, massive partnerships. Tendulkar Ganguly is is the one at the top with eight thousand plus runs together. But yeah, they've gone past some um, some really special names in in the last couple of matches. Um, while they they put on nearly three hundred runs together across the two games, so that I thought was particularly outstanding. And and just looking at Aaron Finch's career, you know, seventeenth one day century the other day, and how 
he's entirely on his own as a player who's had a really substantial one-day career for Australia without having a substantial test career. Everybody else anywhere near him on the one-day runs list or the one-day centuries list, because he's gone past 5,000 runs as well, they've all played a lot of test cricket, which... I would argue probably made one-day cricket easier for them because they were exposed to high-quality bowling more often. They knew how to play it. Finch doesn't get that. He hasn't had that time in test cricket. He's, he's in first-class cricket and, and domestic cricket until he's playing white ball cricket for Australia, and that's the exposure he gets. So he's got 1700s. There's no, there's no one who's played fewer tests than him who's anywhere near him. The next closest is two centuries, which Cameron White made, um, having played fewer than the five tests that Finch has played. So I thought that was particularly notable. Yeah, I still, when I think about the Finch test match story, I still feel a bit sorry for him, really. I mean, gets that opportunity in the UAE, he does pretty well with it in those first two test matches that we were talking about a few minutes ago, and then runs into the worst possible uh, rudder form uh, at the worst possible time, exposed by a phenomenal bowling attack with not a lot of support around him. Yeah, sure, he was left out at the right time. He's, he's said as much himself. But, um, yeah, had had the initial interrogation been a, a little bit less substantial, maybe he would have found his groove in, in that form. But I suppose we'll never know now. But, yeah, I, I, I'm, in a way, I'm sort of surprised that they're not higher up that chart already. It feels as though Finch and Warner have been opening the batting for Australia in one-day cricket for such a long time now. Of course, they were the opening combination all the way back at the 2015 World Cup. I remember them batting together in 13-14 so well, uh, the start of Finch's career, and then both making centuries against England, but uh, that might reflect partially that we play comparatively less one-day cricket now compared to um, what it was in the mid-90s when there were far more tournaments. Plus Warner missing a year, um, True. Which, yeah. which took a chunk out of it as well. So I think from memory they would have had 70 partnerships together by now, which, mm-hmm. which isn't that many, and it's a lot less than anyone who's ahead of them in terms of um, partnership runs on that list. So they've got the most bang for buck out of it. They've got one of the highest averages of any opening partnership. So, yeah, they've, they've been prolific with the opportunities they've had. Well, let's stay with Warner before moving on to some of the other parts of, of the games. Uh, his injury, uh, Dr Peter Bruckner, former guest of The Final Word, was uh, on radio this morning on SEN saying that uh, Warner's injury in football terms is a four- to six-week groin injury, mm. which would rule him out of the first test match. Now, David Warner is the fittest bloke in cricket. Maybe he gets back. Maybe he recuperates quicker than uh, somebody who who would who was less fit or whatever. But let's assume that he isn't playing that first test match at Adelaide on the 17th of December and that they are going to be looking for an opener to replace him. I popped up on Twitter because I couldn't help myself. Uh, who's an experienced left-handed opening batsman in mm-hmm. the form of their life with a good record as a test <laughs> opener? Sean Marsh and, and um, my mentions. You can probably imagine what my t- replies and mentions were like. I was getting... Um, I was copying absolute heat. Because I don't think that I don't, yeah. My my obviously you know, part of me is is, is suggesting this because I I do enjoy enjoy watching the world burn and I especially enjoy watching Twitter burn. But at, at the same time, I mean, yes, I know it won't be Sean Marsh. I I know they're not going to pick a thirty seven year old, but they might want to pick an experienced left hander, which. Usman Khawaj is one of those. Mm. Um, so it's not quite as straightforward, I don't think, as, right, well, Burns and Pekofsky now open together. Maybe they go that way, and that's fine as well. But two right-handers hasn't been something that Australia have done at test level very often in the last 30 or so years, perhaps even longer than that. Um, they like that right-hand, left-hand combination where they can do it, or they prefer two left-handers in the absence of that. So... Yeah, it is an interesting question. Are they looking at Kawaja? Are they looking at Marcus Harris 
Or are they going to go with Pekofsky, who's already in the squad, alongside Burns, who's the incumbent? Langer is very keen on the left-right thing. So that's the one factor that makes it less straightforward than it might be because Pekofsky and Burns, two right-handers. But I, I do wonder just how much store you can put in the left-right combination. You know, Australia had some of their most successful opening combinations with two left-handers in, in test cricket. You know, does it does it really make that much of a difference um, to the point that you you pick players purely on that basis rather than who you think are the best players going around? So I would think that if they have the courage of their convictions with their squad, they have to pick the two openers who are in their squad. You know, that seems the logical move for me and, and maybe they bring in another player as cover. But I, I think you'd be pretty hard done by as an existing squad member if a player's coming in from outside the squad to take a spot in the 11 because that sort of means that you weren't really trusted to do that job regardless. Yeah, unless they've made their mind up that they want Pekofsky to be brought into the test side at number six. It's possible they've made their mind up on that already. I mean, that was the way that Langer was was hinting a couple of weeks ago. He made another comment, though, the other day, which seemed to contradict that, and mm. maybe it, it could be him. Will, that is, uh, opening in that first test. Time will tell. But, yeah, it does and, throw and an we interesting... Have, we have forgotten that. Like, that was convention for a long time in Langer's day. It was always bring the, the new guy in at six. You know, Ponting came yeah. in at six. Damian Martin came in at six. Lehman came in at six. Um and even Joe Burns came in at six when he yep. started his test career for only for a couple of matches. But that was the way it was done. There was no thought about that's the wrong position for someone who might end up being an opener. It was just, you know, it's it's easier batting at six. Maybe there's a more specialised view that six is more specialised now, which I think perhaps there should be because a six needs to be really adaptable in terms of batting with the tail. But a six also needs to be able to face the second new ball. So perhaps having a, an opener in there is a good shout. Yeah, and look, uh, Wade ticks a lot of those boxes, doesn't he? A player who's been versatile up and down the order, a lot of experience. He's batted with the tail. He's done so in white ball cricket, so he's opened. He might indeed open for Australia on in the third one-day international. Uh, he'd be a candidate for that role, given that he was uh, in the Australian white ball teams in England, did well in the limited opportunities uh, over there. So, yeah, there's, there's a bit going on there from the Australian perspective with Warner out of contention in the short term. Glenn Maxwell, just... <laughs> on both mornings, on the Friday and the Sunday, I was woken up, not necessarily by people saying Chuck on the telly, but I was just getting up to take over from you on, on the Guardian Live blog, and I was just happened to be that I was putting the TV on on, on both occasions as Maxwell was walking out. And I mean, he's in such good nick, isn't he? And, I don't, and, I'm, and I'm not even really talking about the bat. He's just so happy. You know, it's just a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing to see a guy who is enjoying his cricket so much and I think Dan Bredig was was making the point that Maxwell enjoys playing so much and that's why when he stepped away from the game last year it shouldn't have in hindsight it, that should have been quite understandable he's stepping away because he wasn't enjoying cricket because when he's on song there's no one who seems to get more out of the uh, mm. more out of the game out of being in the middle than him that huge smile on his face every ball he faces well and and on everybody else's faces watching like what a treat to for for me to be at the ground those last couple of games and and watching it happen and listening to the exclamations that people make you know the, the, even the people in the press box <laughs> who are who are supposed to be jaded and, and paying no attention are sort of saying what was that and how does he do that and uh, it's what was it 108 runs off 48 balls across two innings 
dismissed <laughs> once. Like, and the one time he got out was playing a conventional shot down the ground, caught it long on. <laughs> you know, everything yes. else, everything else was the 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 reverse scoop shot over short third, the the switch hits, um, the the sort of helicopter cover drives that he edges over backward point. Like everything was in there, and it was so much fun to watch that happen. You know, after sort of icing off those those ridiculous innings by Smith uh, making 100 off 62 balls two games in a row. I mean, talk about consistency. That's <laughs> that, It's pretty ridiculous to, to notch up those numbers and, you know, the, the third fastest Australian hundreds behind Maxwell and Faulkner. So that's a, a gear that Smith has never got near hitting before. His fastest before was 89 balls and, you know, that was when he was at the absolute peak of his powers around the 2015 World Cup. So he's he's found something else as well. Yeah, with, with Maxwell, he just loves playing at the Sydney Cricket Ground, doesn't he? The, uh, the the century in the World Cup. But I remember he made 70-odd not out against Pakistan a few years ago when he was kind of in that part of his career when there was so much, why is this guy not playing all three formats? You know, he's, he's Australia's most talented player. And he walked out and made 70-odd off 30 balls or something ridiculous then. And to do something similar over the last few days, I, I found it interesting when he was talking after, I think, the first game that was put to him about the bag of tricks and all the rest. And he said that lockdown and quarantine gave him the chance to do even more work on those. So, yeah, mm. it shouldn't be surprising that he's backing himself to play unorthodox shots from the off rather than... And, and he's never been a player to sort of get himself in conventionally then then turn to those, but that he's completely confident to play them. That, that The risk profile's diminished even from where it was before because he's had this chance to take a break from cricket. And, yeah, I know he didn't have a great IPL. I know Verinda Seawag's out there trying to, you know, get retweets or whatever by bagging him. But when you boil it down, any player can have a rough trot in a T20 competition, especially coming in as he was as the finisher at number six or occasionally number seven when they were shuffling the order. These things happen. It doesn't mean he's not a good cricketer. It means he had a bad tournament. And, And I think that sometimes we need to divorce those two things. And I think sometimes the – you know how sometimes it's just different watching it live? You you get a different sense of the timing of the ball. Those yeah. reverse sweeps that he was playing, you know, quite fine sort of through through what would have been the slip cord and he was playing them along the ground sometimes he, and then he was lofting some for six. All of them felt really secure watching them at the ground. Like they were, they were all clean. You could hear the clean contact. They weren't scrubbed, you know, bottom edge kind of dicey ones or, or top edges that float over the top. It looked like his most secure shot. Um, so what you're mm. saying about working on that over the lockdown period, that seems to check out, you know, from just from a sort of eyeball perspective, you know, looking at it from a fairly amateur perspective the other day. Speaking of eyes, you wrote a lovely piece yesterday about Steve Smith, Jeff, and his second century uh, of the weekend. He said both in 62 balls, the two quickest of his career by you know the length of the straight, and how important it w- his eyes were to that. And I just sort of thought you did a good job of unpacking the idea that when Smith says things, sometimes we don't necessarily understand them. Like the way that he speaks, the way that he interprets batting isn't always straightforward to those of us who've you know, watch the game closely but have never played at that level. And, yeah, with him, it kind of – you wrote the piece, but it, as you articulated it, it is so much about his hand-eye coordination. We could never quite understand uh, something that brilliant. Well, it, it just um, amused me but also puzzled me a bit how people were thrashing around over the last week or so about that comment he made about having found his hands again. Mm. And they were saying, oh, what does it mean? Found his hands. Oh, did he lose his hands? Or oh, pretty hard to bat without your hands. <laughs> um, and, and I was like, 
yeah, okay. He, he's trying to express an idea. So rather than sort of be facetious about it, what's he actually trying to say? And I don't know what he's trying to say because he's he, he's a, a unique individual, but I could speculate that he's he's so finicky about the way things have, have to be that if... And, he, and, and I know that he has spoken about this before, you know, with us in press conferences and so on, where the bat doesn't feel right when he picks it up. And, and who knows why it doesn't feel right, but it doesn't feel right. And if it doesn't, mm. then he doesn't bat as well. And if and when it does, that's when he's really flying. So, yeah, I just thought there was, there was that from him. Whatever it, whatever it means in a technical sense, it meant that he felt right when he picked the bat up. He felt ready to go. But there must be some intent from him as well to say, I want to score faster as a 50-over player because he took on the field a lot more than he's done in the past. He went aerial a lot more, but his use of the gaps was extraordinary. The, the way that like just watching him work the field around over those last couple of games, it was always... I'm hitting exactly the gap that they've just created by moving someone to cover the gap that I used last time. You know, it was mm, it, mm. it was extraordinary um, finesse and control coupled with power, which is where he struggled in the past. Yeah, that comment about the hands, as you say, because we've been on tour with this guy for the entirety of his captaincy career and, of course, since he made his, his comeback last year. He'll occasionally say these sorts of things and I think Gideon Hay made this point a few years ago. You've just got to listen to these guys sometimes like don't overthink what they're saying you got to listen and try and appreciate the points that they're trying to make and I think that might be one of our shortcomings with what happened during Cape Town I had reason to go back and revisit some comments that he made um, before the Newlands test in, in 2018 and had we been listening to Steve Smith that week and actually hearing what he was saying we would have known that he was on the cusp of a pretty much a fairly spectacular breakdown really but we didn't want to hear it we wanted to interpret things our own way and write our own stories and, and all the rest where yeah I think sometimes pr- professional athletes who reach that crazy like god tier they are wired differently and it's yeah and it's about trying to appreciate what they're saying and, and also trying not to overthink it trying not to think that we're smarter than them essentially and patronize the points they're making if steve smith says that he's found his hands that means something and we should respect that rather than trying to inherently undermine it yeah that that, that was kind of how i felt about it as well obviously no stranger to uh, making fun of cricketers sometimes but it's like pick what you what you need to make fun of them for mm-hmm. um and and Mitchell Stark's an example of that as well where you know had a horrible over in the first game bowled 11 balls I think it was went for 20 runs mm-hmm. bunch of wides and a no ball and yeah it's, it's yuck but that can happen you know I mean god knows anyone who's below that level has bowled an 11 ball over at some point in time and he's a player who who has that same sort of need for rhythm that needs to click and and uh, has had a bad couple of ODIs but it's it's sort of funny how quickly people will switch to oh he's he's scattergun and unreliable and shit and you're like no he's he's got a claim to being the best one day international bowler ever already you know in his career he's, he's had an extraordinary wicket-taking career that it can be pretty quick to turn yeah certainly a claim on being the best 50 over um, new ball bowler as well as far as what he's been able to do well, we're both ends of the innings but um yeah the fact that after one over the commentary moved to should we take the new ball off mitchell stark i mean come on talk about knee jerk yep had a bad game on friday Unlucky uh, on on Sunday, a couple of those in swinging Yorkers, the Shikadar one that were you know the inside edge past leg stump early on. If if that goes right, who knows how his his night changes? 
sure he's a rhythm bowler. He says it himself. So, but the good thing is that one day internationals, T20s, he'll play the majority of those. Pat Cummins is being rested from the rest of them. So I assume that means Stark will play throughout. It gives him a chance to build into it. It's not as though he's being thrown into a test match where he's under that microscope day after day in an environment where if you've lost your rhythm, it can go really bad very quickly. At least in, in, in short form cricket, it ends and then he starts again. And so I think that there's no need for panic stations with Mitchell Stark. And India, interesting for me in that people have jumped on them as well. I, I, I don't know. I don't even think they played that badly. I thought they chased pretty well in both of the games in terms of putting a good score together, but they were chasing nearly 400, so they were never going to win them. I thought Coley batted well on Sunday night. Hardik Pandey was terrific on Friday. And, and even bowling-wise, um, Muhammad Shami in particular, I thought, has actually bowled really well, but has had some bad luck at points, and he's been up against a batting team that's just flying along. But, you know, Friday night he took three for 59 off 10 when they were going absolutely berserk at everybody else. He's bold quality. Uh, he just hasn't taken a bag of wickets, but it looks like he's he's not far away from doing that. Like, he's a player who could, who could wreck an innings um, for Australia very easily, whether it's in a test match or, or in one of the white ball games coming up. Yeah, I haven't seen much of India bowl, so I'm kind of taking it on second-hand reports because their bowling innings have been sort of in the middle of the night over here. As far as their batting, though, I mean, they've done pretty well, really, uh, when you consider the sort of totals they've been, they've been trying to chase down. Often those sort of innings can... You lose early wickets like they did in the first game. I think they lost three wickets between over six and over ten, something like that, and suddenly it's all out for 200. But they had enough depth uh, through Pandya... Shikatawan, Coley in, in the second game, getting out at a time when it just looked as though they were about to not take favouritism, but I think they needed to go at 10 and over from that point with maybe yeah. 20 overs to go. It just sort of felt like if, if you know, they, they, they were taking it to a sort of T20 style chase at the end. Exactly uh, and that. In, and, and, and when you've got India, India, the IPL team, you know, exactly. um, when yeah. they've got that, okay, you need 160 off 80, well, you can do that because you know you've done it before. That's right. That's right. So uh, there was some criticism of the way that uh, Coley got out uh, in the first innings. Well, I mean, yeah, they needed nine and over to win when he walked in or something like yeah. that. It's not as though uh, I, I saw some sort of quite ridiculous, so I heard some quite ridiculous commentary about the way Coley got out. I'm like, yeah, okay. He, he's got not many options at his disposal after they've lost three wickets in a hurry and whatever it was but yeah. um yeah so I, I, I yeah i don't think india have too much cause for concern either considering they've spent two weeks in lockdown we don't really know yet it's hard to measure but the effect that takes on on a team when they when they've been in that environment so i'm sure by the time they, they get to the test matches they'll be in far better nick and i don't want to underplay how important these one day internationals are indeed you can see how seriously they're being taken by the fact that india decided to bat out the final five overs on both nights because they know that net run rate is something that's factored into the one day super league standing so yes a little bit annoying that they're you know leaning on the splice trying to block it out not get out but you can understand why that is the case because there's the, the secondary element to this. It's all inside that competition structure. And I suppose, Jeff, uh, on that point, it did look kind of ridiculous at the end of both games that Australia were trying to race through overs in 60 to 90 seconds to beat the curfew, to uh, get the overs in without getting fined. It looked farcical and they were partially put in that situation because India overshot the runway by, I think it was 40 minutes in the first game and half an hour in the second or 25 minutes or something like that in the second game. I just think that it's worth laying yet another marker that it's not sustainable. This is getting worse, not better, year on year. Nothing that has been done so far in the last few years has changed anything. The captaincy bans, which, of course, Jason Holder endured 
in a test series against England. They scrapped that. They went to a fine system. As I pointed out on Twitter, 20% of the match fee, if you're an Indian millionaire cricketer, you're not getting out of bed for 20% of your match fee. I mean, there's mm. a, it has to be some in-play runs measure. And what I've suggested is that let's give the match referee full discretion. Let's give them full discretionary powers. And by that, I mean, yes, have a framework around how many runs would apply for how many overs late you are, like having a T20 blast. But allow the match referee to pretty much make their own mind up. Let's put these guys to work. They're meant to be the most esteemed people in the game. Allow them to make a decision as to what 40 minutes late in that context of the first game, what that actually means, and, and add that run tally together. And I think that's a, the only way you're going to get to a situation where teams will stop taking the piss because at the moment, 20% of the match fee, who cares? It's such a fraught discussion every time this one because... There's always the gamble for a fielding captain that if you bowl the other team out, it doesn't count. You know, your slow yep. your slow rate goes away if you get them out in the 45th over or whatever it may be. And there are people who argue that it doesn't really matter and that we shouldn't worry about over rates, which I have some sympathy for if the cricket's engrossing. But I could say if I channeled myself as a spectator, I left the SCG at about 20 past 11 on both nights, you know, PM, when... When the first innings finished 40 minutes late, meaning that, you know, you're an hour behind by the time you've had the dinner break and, and all the rest of it. It's it's a very late night for people who've got to travel home. It, it drags on TV. It doesn't make it an exciting game because it, it feels like it's going on and on, particularly when you sort of know the result ahead of time like you did, maybe, maybe more so on Friday night than on Sunday night. So I'd fully agree that it has to be in play but the difficulty is in deciding who's responsible because the key thing yeah India were 38 minutes late on Friday night Steve Smith called for a new pair of gloves after facing eight deliveries he changed his gloves something like I don't know 18 times they were the Australians had I think someone was counting 40 plus times that the the runner came out onto the field for the Australian batting pair to you know Glenn Maxwell came out faced one ball in a cap the last ball of an over from a spinner then got his helmet for the next over from a fast bowler then got his cap back for the next over from a spinner you know the the fielding team has uh, sorry the batting team has like four players on the field at all times it seems Mm. so you can't sit there with a fine enough stopwatch to dictate what is whose fault I don't think so I think there'd be a lot of situations where you know a match ref says okay well you get 20 penalty runs added to your your chase but how much of the time can they can they know for sure is down to the batting side or the fielding side and so I don't know I've I've been an advocate for a while of the idea that there needs to be some sort of in-play timer um, like like a shot clock for when the bowler has to be running into bowl and that if the batter's not ready at the crease, well, that's their problem. I don't know how workable that is either because, you know, that requires someone to run that. But I think there has to be something within play that says that you you can't have the delays and, and solve the problem of the delay afterwards. You've got to stop the delay from taking place in the first place. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense, especially the bit about um, the batting team being culpable as well, which does complicate matters with penalty runs because imagine, you know, from what you're saying, and again, I didn't see the Smith innings, but let's say he's responsible for, say, a quarter of the delay, then, you know, how are you uh, sort of apportioning blame there? That is tough, but 
we always say it, how come in first-class cricket and in domestic cricket that's not televised, they find a way to make it work? Having, you know, both of us have been to a lot of Shield cricket, never an issue with overrates. Very, very rarely in the county championship likewise. Yet, for some reason, it's, it's always an issue at international level. So it's going to have to be a cultural change over a number of years. And if they need to use a blunt instrument in the short term and they allow the match referee to be the person overseeing how that instrument is used, I think that might be a way of kind of uh, whipping them into shape. And then maybe after that, there might be provision for something like you're talking about where there's just a, a standing measure and you have to get... I mean, remember when T20 started, that was 75 minutes you needed to get your overs in mm. by, and that was that. There was, a, there was a countdown clock. Now, that's long since gone, but the fact that T20 internationals... The same thing happened in the uh, New Zealand-England game on Friday night. That was... I think we fell a couple of minutes short of that being four hours. Now, T20 cricket was meant to be over in three. What's going to happen with the 100? I mean, I know we're jumping, jumping uh, from thing to thing here, but the 100's mm. got to be over in three hours. Well, based on the evidence of what we're seeing in white ball cricket, it never will be. So, yeah. And, and you, you, you're spot on about patrons as well. It's just not, not family-friendly. And isn't the game about developing a fan base for the next generation? 20 past 11 versus 10 o'clock when it was meant to finish is very different for, for kids and the willingness for parents to take them along. So an annoying postscript to what's been an otherwise um, really interesting uh, couple of days of one-day international cricket. Finish off by noting that Pat Cummins isn't going to play for the rest of the series. He was fantastic last night. Josh Hazelwood, we spoke about it when Australia were in England, Jeff, in September, but to think this guy was way outside of white ball calculations at the start of 2020, he may very well be Australia's most important 50-over bowler right now, certainly the most informed. And Adam Zampa, whose stocks continue to rise every time that he bowls in a in a 50-over international after being quite outstanding in England. He's taken seven wickets in two games and really been able to put the clamps on and, and bounce back well after taking tap. And I suppose the only other bowler to mention is Moses Henriquez. Again, having not played for... Oh, since the Champions Trophy of 2017, it must have been barely mm. bowling, really, for Australia. Um, his seven overs last night were, were as important as any at the world. Well, uh, also that, I mean, poor old Moe um, <laughs> came, out, came out to bat with seven balls to go, <laughs> got to face one, made two off one ball, strike rate of 200, not bad, um, <laughs> and then watched from the other end as, as Glenn Maxwell took apart the last over. And then, yeah, looked bowled well, but also the pivotal moment of the night took, the catch of the night at mid-wicket when Coley played that pull shot. Enriquez was the one flying away to his left to take an absolutely ridiculous catch. And that was, mm. as you identified, that was the point where Coley was like, okay, now, you know, I've done the rebuild. Now it's time to hit the gas. And Enriquez was able to stop that. So played a really pivotal role and it's it's nice to see him getting back. And yeah, Josh Hazelwood, he's, he's got to go to India. There's no way around it. He's got to go. <laughs> They've got to get him on that plane. <laughs> I think he will next year for the T20 World Cup as well. Jeff, last Lastly, on Maxi, I mean, we have invested a lot of time into telling the Glenn Maxwell story over the last six years, and hopefully we'll tell it for, for many, many more. One thing we have never made him, though, is the Seabus Super Performer of the Week, and thanks to the, the joy that he brought, not only us, but many, many million cricket fans around the world over the last few days, I think it's only right. I'm shocked to, that you say that we haven't, have we not? I just would have assumed we would have done it about six times by now. But your recall for these things is usually better than mine. So if you say we haven't, we haven't. It is important to note that the innings, the innings from Glenn Maxwell were very selfless. They were about scoring quickly uh, for the benefit of the team. And that is very much like the way that CBUS makes sure that all profits go to members, not to shareholders. That's what it's about. It's all about supporting your team. CBUS 
like the letter C and then B-U-S. cbussuper.com.au is where you can find information about this superannuation company. You don't have to work in construction. You can be anyone. Uh, you need to remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. That's a disclaimer that all superannuation companies would like you to remember. Uh, but go and, go and sort your life out. Sort your finances out. Maxi, <laughs> Super Performer of the Week. Jeff, the Women's Big Bash League came to an end. At North Sydney Oval over the weekend, the semi-finals mm-hmm. and the final were all played in quick succession. The Thunder win their second title. There were, well, there was a crazy semi-final between the Heat and the Thunder, a fairly conventional one where Melbourne easily accounted for the Scorchers before the Thunder beat the Stars in a poor game of cricket, a low-scoring game, error riddled really, unfortunately, uh, which is an ideal. But, Jeff, uh, let's start with the semi-finals perhaps before getting to the finale. Melbourne beating Perth in that semi-final using that method that they used throughout the course of the season, chasing, uh, squeezing with the ball and then hunting down the total and doing it comfortably, courtesy of their very deep batting lineup. Well, the, the, the Stars-Scorchers game was pretty much decided on the basis that Perth are a two-player team. They recruited Soph Devine and, and Beth Mooney at the top of the order and then you know Heather Graham is a good player and does her best, but aside from her, they've got very little batting from that point on. They've They've got some... Uh, to be blunt, some dead wood on their on their list and and in their eleven that that they've had for quite some time that doesn't contribute and so you know those those two were not out cheaply but you know not making huge scores in that semi and and that just meant that there wasn't enough and and the stars were able to to do that comfortably and and then it was supposed to be the Brisbane Heat to play them in the final you know they they're the two most impressive sides of the season on balance. And, and Brisbane were cruising. They had Laura Kimmins come in and, and do what she's been doing, which is just absolutely <laughs> mutilate every delivery that comes their way. It's very funny watching Laura Kimmins go about her season. She had a shocker of a start. She had six or seven games at the start where she couldn't get out of single figures. And then suddenly was, what, 41 not out of 17 balls, I think, and just went from there, kept making 40-odd off 15 or 20 deliveries. So... You know, she was doing that. It all looked fine. And then suddenly um, the Thunder put the squeeze on and that's the the thing they've got at their disposal is is a really good varied bowling lineup where they've they've got good pace options, they've got swing, they've got spin. So when you look at their bowlers, Sammy Joe Johnson was the top wicket taker in the league. Hannah Darlington was second and, and Sam Bates was equal third. So you put that together in, in one bowling attack and it's in the end no surprise that, that the Thunder won even though it was a surprise on the night because the Stars were the, the more highly ranked team. Yeah, that, that bowling lineup uh, in the final. So Meg Lanning elects to bat first, which was thoroughly unexpected. Uh, mm. And that squeeze, I mean, Shabnam Ismail, two for 12, off four off the top, picking up the key wicket of Lanning. Uh, Sammy J. Johnson, two for 11 from her four bowling through the innings. Catherine Brunt, top scores for the Stars with, with 22 not out. But, I mean, 86 for nine from 20, it, it's a fairly anemic-looking uh, scorecard. And, yeah, I suppose it, it, it comes down to how well the, the Thunder bowled in on the big stage. Well, particularly off the top, because Ismail had Lanning dropped twice <laughs> before she got her out for but she make 13 mm. i think so and and was Ishmael's been bowling really well the last three or four games in the lead up as well you know properly fast she got some assistance at Drummond and and was able to bowl short and get aggressive and and get enthused about it and you know we we interviewed her after that game and and she was like when i go out onto that field i just want to hit beast mode that was her that was her <laughs> description of it which given she's about 4 foot 8 is is very funny but 
she does. She, you know, she went, she went beast mode and she bowled quick and was cutting it away and, and then Sammy Joe Johnson was getting proper swing. So, you know, they knocked over Villani early and, and then were all over Lanning. But I think the batting first thing was largely because it was about 40 degrees that day and you couldn't have picked that up on the TV. But that, that day and the one day or on the Sunday, it was absolutely disgusting. It was, right. it was foul. Like you... You know, I would. I walked ten minutes to the SCG, and I thought I was going to die. I was. I was in there, sitting in the ground, just sweating, dripping sweat in the air conditioning, and gasping and trying to drink water. It was horrible. So, India had to field in that on the Sunday, um, and I, I reckon on the Saturday the stars might have looked at that and said, "We want to field second after it might have cooled down a bit." You know, once the sun's gone properly down and and bat first to to give them the discomfort. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That didn't really come across on the coverage. You're right. Slightly unnerving to hear that it's in excess of 40 degrees in November, coming back to a couple of conversations that we had on. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Totally normal for it to be 41 degrees in November. Yeah. But the Thunder chased that down comfortably. Heather Knight, 26 not out. She's now WBBL champion after moving clubs in the offseason. Rachel Haynes, 21 not out at the end. The skipper leading them to that trophy. I mean, it was the WBBL where Rachel Haynes got her career back on track, Jeff. And um, she's obviously been such an important part of this Australian machine over the course of the last three years and, and now gets this recognition as the captain of the Women's Big Bash League champions. Yeah, and, and you know, a significant moment she passed Alex Blackwell during the season as their leading run scorer for that club. She's been there since the start. Uh, you know, won that inaugural title in in fifteen sixteen, and and I think particularly to to achieve that with a, a squad that has so many teenage players and you know really young players and make them a key part of the lineup. You know, Litchfield, Darlington, Treneman, mm. all playing significant roles um, in the lead up to that final or, or in the final itself. You know that. That shows the value of that leadership um, that Rachel Haynes is able to deliver. Jeff, another discussion point around the final was that Channel 7 elected to put it on their secondary channel. Now, it's a debate that we're pretty familiar with now. This isn't the first time that, that, that women's sport has been put on the non-main channel. I understand both sides of the debate. I, I, I get it. I understand where people are coming from when they say that everybody has access to the secondary channel. It makes no difference. But I also think, and this is the point that we've raised in the past, that the idea of it being put on the main channel does sort of carry with it greater prestige, rightly or wrongly. It just kind of does, I think, still. There is a, a marginal increase as far as numbers as well when, when a show appears on the main channel. And it kind of feeds into this broader inconsistency about Channel 7 and their relationship with cricket so far this summer which I mean it's hard to get a read on on whether they think the game's good or otherwise well it's it's been pretty comical at times because they're running all these ads for the men's big bash saying all of the stars are coming to Australia to play in the BBL at the same time as they're saying they should get a discount from cricket Australia because there aren't enough stars playing in the BBL mm, um, mm. so that's that's the consistency <laughs> of seven they're also complaining that they didn't get enough cricket before the first test match and then they're choosing not to show the cricket that they've got on their main channel and I I understand the people who say you can find them all in your remote control etc cetera, etc cetera, but that doesn't actually stack up because far fewer people watch the secondary channels that's just a fact channel seven channel nine channel ten they all badge their main channel as their main channel. They have that as their default channel. Those are the ones that, you know, particularly older watchers are going to to use and be familiar with. They're not going to go to channel 73 or whatever it is to go and find a digital network. And so when you put something on a main channel, you get 
an audience that isn't looking for it. Now, if someone wants to find the WBBL, they can find it. But if they weren't looking for it specifically, they're not going to happen upon it. Uh, they're going to probably pick out of the main three stations. And that's absolutely backed up by the figures. Channel 7 gets about you know, roughly 20% of the ratings. 7 Mate, which is the channel they put it on, gets 35 to 4% of the ratings. So you get five or six times as many people likely to see it if it's on the main channel. So it's not as simple as saying anyone can find the channel because they can't and they won't and they don't. It is different. It's a major difference and it sends a signal that the Big Bash is not important because they, they're going to put the men's games on the main channel. If you could say it didn't matter, they'd be putting all the men's games on the secondary station, but they won't. Yeah, that's right. And we had this same conversation around the women's T20 World Cup final uh, with Channel 9. And again, this is an ongoing sort of stoush, I suppose. But yeah, it, it, it's uh, curious how it fits into that that Channel 7 public commentary they've been running about Australian cricket for the summer of 2021 for about four months now, which I mean, I, I suppose is resolved to the extent to which it is going to be on Channel 7. But the fact that they're still making the case for a discount, I mean, who knows where this will end up in the next couple of years. Well, CA offered them a 20% discount on their what is it 75 million i think that they're supposed to mm. pay so that's already more so that means ca would already have lost more money than they supposedly gained by signing with seven instead of signing with 10 a couple of years ago and that's if seven accepted the 20 percent discount which they didn't because they want more so you know they, they're their campaign is an absolute joke the way that they've the reasons they've put forward for supposedly needing a discount versus the way that they've presented the game itself as as a product that they're promoting. I wonder if, if you could if you could speak privately to Cricket Australia now, three years on or two and a half years on, the, the sum of money they had at their disposal to go with Channel 10 all the way against the compromises they are being forced to consider with Seven and Fox, which let's not even bother talking about Fox, but Fox, let's just put them to one side. I wonder whether now CA would say, sod it, you know, you can keep your extra 100 mil. <laughs> we'll, we'll take whatever it was. Was it 900 mil versus one? Yeah. Whatever it was. That, no, I know it it's was... a lot of money. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be trivial about uh, money that funds the game. I appreciate how important the rights deals are. But having stuck with an organisation like 10 uh, to have driven this home across the course of six years on free-to-air television, that would be an interesting private conversation, which I'm sure we'll never get to have. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure we won't either. Yeah, it, it was 960 million from right. 10 and CBS versus the 1.1 billion. So it was about 150 million difference. But what they would have got for that was every single game of cricket, domestic and international on free-to-air tv every shield game every wncl game everything would have been yeah on yeah. on free-to-air tv so yeah <laughs> you decide whether it was a good deal now that your um highly litigious free-to-air partner is trying to uh legally uh, shoehorn you into giving them a discount that they didn't agree to up front uh, Jeff, I, I'm mindful we've been going for quite a while today, as we tend mm. to do when we say it'll be a quick show. We'll just talk about the one days, the women's yep. bash final. We still haven't quite gotten around to the England South Africa T20s though, and we'll skip through those because I know you haven't had the chance to watch them. I've been covering them. The first game was a classic, thanks to Johnny Bairstow principally, uh, an unbeaten 84 off 48 balls. I think it was they were gone. England in the power play, they lost. Three wickets, and for all money, they, they looked as though they were staring down the barrel of a fairly hefty defeat. But 
Uh, thanks to Bearstow and Stokes who put on 85 in no time. I think it was Bearstow 86 actually, not 84. Uh, and then Owen Morgan and Sam Curran at the very end, who's such a such an exciting cricketer. He t- took wickets early on and made runs when it mattered, hitting a flat bat six in the in the penultimate over to make it possible. I felt sorry for Buren Hendricks uh, at the end, Jeff. Uh, we we talked about Mitchell Stark's 11 ball over. Well, Hendricks bowled a 10 ball over that went for 28, which Whoa. was spliced between a Rabada over that went for two and an Engedi over that went for four. But it didn't matter because Hendricks went for for 28. I think that was the 17th over and that was game over. So they they lost the first game, South Africa, more than England winning it, although Bairstow was magnificent. What a a funny old character Bairstow is becoming. Every game that he plays for England, really, it feels as though uh, he's the most interesting character in it right now. And he's been moved to number four, which before the series was a bit of a discussion point. That is, he's not opening. It's as though he's been demoted, if you like, to number four. Not quite as clear-cut as that, but still he responds with that match-winning effort. And then in the second game yesterday at Pal, so they're rotating between uh, Newlands and Pal. South Africa made 146, so they were well held by England, especially Adil Rashid, two for 23 or four. He just keeps on keeping on. Jofra Archer, one for 18, economical and effective as always. And they chased it down. They were hard held. They only got there with a couple of balls to spare. But Dawood Milan, uh, player of the match, 55 of 40 balls. Uh, he's now made... Eight half centuries and a century, so nine scores above 50 in 18 T20 internationals. He's the number one ranked uh, batsman in the world in that format, which kind of seems weird when you consider that it's kind of unclear to me whether he'll even be in the in the England T20 team at, at full strength at the World Cup mm. next year. But based on the way he continues to deliver, and usually in, in this kind of way as well, he, he's the guy that stands up in the lower scoring games on, on shit pitches where you need someone to drive you through, more so than when it's a flatty and you're chasing 220. He's perhaps a little bit less effective in that setting. So but still, you can't question his numbers. He's phenomenal. And he's, uh, you know, Channel 7 will be pleased to know he's coming out for the Big Bash this summer. The stars, <laughs> the number one ranked player in the world. Um, <laughs> and, and I saw that Tabraz Shams, he picked up wickets as well. Anytime a, yes. a left arm wrist spinner takes wickets, I'm very pleased about that. Well, they've got two left arm spinners in, in the side, actually. George Linder, one to watch. He's tall. He bowls left arm orthodox. He hits the ball about 150 metres. And, uh, I mean, he's a bowling all-rounder, but hasn't had much of an opportunity. That was his debut on Friday in T20 International Cricket. I think he's played one test match, but the point being is that he's a mature cricketer. I think he's 28 or 29 years of age, and just on first impression, he looks a, looks a good one. So he'll be, I'm sure, part of their thinking uh, when we build towards the World Cup in that form of the game in 11 months' time. And, Jeff, uh, before we wrap up this part of the show uh, for the week... The ICC have elected their new independent chair, as they call it, uh, Greg Barclay, who's a a New Zealander who has a a rugby administration uh, background as well. Jeff, I'm sure you've seen his comments during the week. He's done a lot of interviews, done a lot of press, and a lot of what he says uh, I think would... Uh, would, would strike a chord with, with people that listen to the final word. He's saying that cricketers have been overworked, their welfare's been not considered, especially when it comes to major tournament schedules. He, he made that point to Dan Bredig on, on Crick Info. He's not completely enamoured with the format of the World Test Championship, which would kind of suggest that you know the, the the format they've got for this cycle and next, which is nowhere near as good as it can be, that he'll be open to reform on on that front as well. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure the extent to which he'll have autonomy, given that he was appointed by the BCCI, Cricket Australia, and ECB. The old big three got behind Barclay, so that's worth remembering. And of course, uh, the the system is set up to support those three boards at the moment. But you know. 
positive comments and that, that's all you can really ask for when someone's taking on the job. There is the opportunity now for, you know, say he could organise something where, where the, the champion T20 team from each country played together in a, a format and it could be called the Barclays Premier League. <laughs> you know, do you think that would do you think that would fly? Might get off the ground? Um, but, but positive initially in that he's... He was basically talking about the ICC becoming an events manager rather than an organising body uh, and wanting to put on as many tournaments as possible so that there's more money coming in when perhaps more support for bilateral cricket would be healthier given that that's what really keeps countries going and that the way the bilateral system is set up at the moment basically ensures that the smaller countries stay small and, and the big countries stay big. So uh, th- there is that um, more equitable distribution from ICC tournaments to a degree, but it, it doesn't necessarily help everybody uh, as much all the time. So he's he's revisiting the idea of pooling all of the, the rights from the smaller countries, which is, you know, it's one that bobs up from time to time and, and has never got going, but you know, hopefully it could get going at some stage that you know, that could make a significant difference overall. But ultimately with the ICC, it's, it's always the the livestock voting amongst themselves as to who's for dinner. So you can't mm. get really good impartial decisions made because the boards have to, the, the boards are the ICC, you know, the ICC is not sitting there as a separate organisation. So it's whoever stands to benefit the most and, and has the most money and influence will make sure that things go the way that they would prefer them to be. Yeah, that's certainly how it was around the Big Three era, which, I mean, we're still in, we're still living through, but uh, when they, that heist back in fourteen fifteen, when they just allocated themselves all of the major events and completely took over the, the revenue base was a, a fairly unflattering chapter in, in global cricket governance. And yeah, I, I just think that even though he knocked off the Singaporean who was in the job before and it was a bad look that the reason he got over the line was because it was via Big Three support. Yeah, it, it takes a... Ta- you got to have something about you to go out and then immediately start making comments which could be uh, interpreted as hostile by, by boards that have just voted for you. So more power to Greg Barclay, I suppose, in, in the short term and, and let's hope there's some, some substance behind the style uh, in the years to come. Jeff, we have an interview to get to, but before doing that, we have just a tiny bit of time for some nerd pledge hey, it's the nerd pledge it's a me uh, it's <laughs> the game we play with the people on our patron page uh, bless their hearts they support the show by sending us a, a little a little token a little, little bit of money in an envelope for chinese new year a little bit of uh, you know a few dollars and a few cents but the number the number is what matters because the number has a clue contained within it. The number has some relation to cricket. It's not just an ordinary number, it's a cricket number. And then we, Adam, have to work out what the number is. The first number on the show today comes from John Rees. And John Rees has sent an amount of $5.67. So you could put that together in any way you wanted, five, six, seven in sequence. But there is a clue as well from John. Thank you, John. The clue, he says, is gradage. I do not know what gradage is, but it's got a capital G, R-A-D-I-D-G-E. My clue is gradage, 
Five, six, seven. What do you got, Adam? Yeah, I, it didn't take me long to work this out. I mean, Gradage were the... <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. My <laughs> boot scooting babies. <laughs> that, that, was, uh, was that, that was Steps, wasn't it, that sung Five, Six, Seven, Eight? Uh, would I be right in I, I can never tell S Club 7 from Steps. I'm from, pretty sure it was Steps. Uh, and let yeah. me give you the tip. Steps have had two absolute bangers released this year during lockdown that have been getting a run on Radio 2 regularly. And both of them... In ordinary circumstances, I'd say it would be a chance of winning Eurovision. The latter one, the one that came out a couple of weeks ago, has about four different key changes. It's right in my um, right wow. in my Eurovision swinging arc. But anyway, if that's your thing, who would have thought that at the start of the year that I'll be saying that Steps have um, a number of number of bangers. Anyway, right back to Gradage. Uh, so five, six, seven, John Rees. Yeah, the clue. It, it didn't sort of take me long to get to the bottom of this because this was one of the, all the old bats from that era. A, a lot of the players used a, a Gradage bat, so you see them in, in the uh, in the archives and so on. Uh, and right. from an England perspective, uh, the, the man who's most famous for using it in the 40s was Len Hutton. So uh, we've talked a lot about Len Hutton uh, on, on Storytime and on The Final Word with respect to his 364, but he was a, yeah, a famous user of, of the Gradage bats and across his long and storied career, nearly 7,000 test runs and 79 test matches from 1937, I think it was, all the way through till the mid-50s. He was uh, the first professional to captain England, so a real pioneer as well as far as what he was able to achieve at international level, missing, of course, six years in the middle of all that because of World War II. But his batting average in test cricket was uh, 56.7, if you round it up. So that, that accounts for the John Rees 5.67. And as far as what Gradage became, I mean, we think of them these days as Slazinger. They got absorbed within that sort of the Slazinger machine uh, with a number of mergers and, and so on uh, down the track. But if you, if you look at those bats that Hutton used, I think Bradman used one as well, if, if I recall correctly, at one stage or another, with the signature underneath the sort of that facsimile signature that you'd see on those bats of that certain era um the, the gradage was was what len hutton used and i'm certain that must be where john reese was going for five six seven very good uh gradage i had I, I, it was a big hole in my cricket knowledge i didn't even know it was a kind of bat we've got another number adam it's from not that Tim Minchin. Uh, this is the Tim Minchin <laughs> who signed up to support the patron and immediately messaged us to say, don't get excited, I'm not that Tim Minchin, which is very considerate. Thank you, Tim. Right, and he sent us through. Now, let's work through this. It's 272, but his clue is that it relates to his previous number. So Tim's done what a number of our patrons have done in recent months and upgraded his number or changed his number to continue to give us stories to tell uh, on our weekend show, which is great of him. So, But he, he wants us to work out 272 via the 216 so a little bit cryptic and and jeff uh, i left that one to you okay so 272 but relates to 216 i'm going to take you on a little journey here so when you say 216 to the final word it it could mean two things it could mean two very important things it could either mean the 216 wickets that clarence grimmett took as a leg spinner Clarence Grimmett alert uh, hasn't been mentioned on the show today. Is now Clary Grimmett took two sixteen <laughs> Test wickets, first to get past two hundred. Dean Jones' top score in Test cricket was two hundred and sixteen. They would be competing in our affections for favourite players, so it could relate to one. It could relate to the other. But the first place I went with this doesn't relate to either. Now this may be in, almost certainly entirely unrelated, but it was too good to pass up. So we're going to look at two sixteen. And 272. Remember, the nerd pledge number is 272, but it relates to 216. Okay, who took two innings to take 16 wickets? 216, Bob Massey, right? Mm -hmm. On debut, Lords, two innings, 16 wickets. 
because he took so many wickets, he took the last wicket to fall in, in both innings. Meaning that both of those times he, he bowled an incomplete number of overs in the match. So in the second innings, when he took the 16th wicket, the 2-16, he did that in the 28th over that he had bowled. Meaning that in two innings, he took 16 wickets and in the second innings bowled 27.2 overs while so doing, <laughs> two seven two. Hmm? That's good. I like it a lot. It's Bob good. Massey, of course, a West Australian. The other Tim Minchin from West Australia as well. If we want to, <laughs> if we want to, if we want to draw that link, hey, it'll do. No, I, I think the other Tim Minchin's from Brisbane. Um, I think we're supposed to. Uh, maybe we'll we'll meet up with him. No, no, no. The, our, the, Tim our Tim Minchin. Our Tim Oh, the Brisbane. Tim the yeah. other. I'm calling that oh. Tim Minchin. The other Tim Minchin for the purpose of our. Uh, okay. W- w- there's only one Tim Minchin to us. Right, yeah, in our in our hearts, in our affections, there are two Tom Stewarts and one Tim Minchin. Um, <laughs> so, I wonder if you could use that as a sort of not quite rhyming slang, but you know, you know, when you put up a tweet, for instance, saying that Sean Marsh should come back, and then there's a, a bonfire in in your your mentions, you could say, "Oh, they're they're up in my Tim Minchins." Um, <laughs> would, would that work? It's close enough. <laughs> Look, okay, so so we're looking. For 272 with a relation to Clary Grimmett or Dean Jones, I couldn't, like, nothing rang a bell for Clary. And I know a lot of Clary information and there was nothing, there might be something there. If there is, I want to know about it. I know a lot of Clary information. (laughs) One of the great understatements of Final Word history there. Yeah, I know a lot so of Clary thought- Grimmett information. <laughs> if you want, I'm going to open my open my one side of my overcoat and be like, "You want to buy some Clary Grimmett information? Um, this stuff is fresh on the streets." I'm thinking of like coming to America when when the guys got all of Eddie Murphy's gold plated hair dryers and whatnot. So so we're going to go two seven two in relation to Dean Jones. There's one quite nice little link, which is the New Year's Day 1987 ton when Dino smashes a ton against England in a, in a losing run chase when no one else makes a run. They were chasing 272 that day, so they could be yeah. a 272. But here's one that I like more. At the point at which Dean Jones retired, he only played 164 ODIs, which sort of seems ridiculous when you look at just how many some other players played. But in that time, he made 6,068 runs. So at the time that he retired, he was the second highest run scorer for Australia. Alan Border had more. He had 6,513. So Alan Border had made 445 more runs. He had taken 108 more games to get them. (laughs) So he's averaging about 30. Dino's averaging about 50 and absolutely flying along. So what that means is that Dino got just over 6,000 runs in 164 games. Alan Border got just over 6,000 runs in 272 games. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it certainly links together. And it's I'm, related to Dean Jones. And it relates it's related to, Jones, to 272. Relates to the yeah. And it shows how good he was comparative to the highest run scorer at the time who was scoring them at a much slower and lower rate. Thank you, Tim Minchin, and thank you, John Rees. Let us know how we've gone. Patreon.com forward slash the final word is where you can uh, make a contribution and be part of our private members forum as we've been describing it on the Patreon page. It is... (laughs) It is, uh, it, it's just taken a life of its own on there uh, as far as the people having conversations with each other and talking to us and so much fun. As I mentioned before, when um, I, off the very front of the show today, when, when thanking uh, David Kaufman, I mean, that just came from a conversation.
conversation we were having about the UAE in 2018. It's it's a lovely place. Uh, we're so grateful to have so many people there who've been backing the show in, especially through 2020, which has been a tough year. So if you want to be part of that, patreon.com forward slash the final word. I mentioned on Storytime on Saturday that we're going to be making... Uh, the final word daily again during the Border Gavaskar test matches and now that I'm going to be in Australia touch wood uh, again Jeff and I will be doing those together at the grounds and then we'll be making the weekly show with a, a major set piece interview we've got a couple in the can that we're really looking forward to rolling out um, with sort of high profile people in and around cricket so there's going to be loads of final word through the Australian summer daily shows for the Border Gavaskar weekly shows with interviews and then story time each weekend so if that inspires you to hit the button that'd be fantastic again patreon.com forward slash the final word some may say there will be too much final word. Uh, who knows? <laughs> but can't stop, won't can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Been, it's been the motto of this show and it will continue to be. Uh, I think we can stop and will stop just for about 20 seconds while we, we take a momentary breather before we get through to our interview. Once a month around the world, the bells ring for the launch of a new edition of Wisden Cricket Monthly. They know that's how often it comes out because the clue is in the name. And this month, it is all about pace. It's about fast bowling. It's about using the adjective raw a lot. And it's about what it takes to be fast and uh, what kind of people can do it. So they're talking to Shoab Akhtar particularly in an exclusive interview about all of the effort that he required to become the fastest man in the world. Yeah, it's another fantastic cover. Shoab Akhtar's on the cover, an old picture of him that's been reimagined, so that's what we're taking a look at. And the conversation he's had with Taha Hashim, which will surely be worth a read. Taha's one of the real bright sparks of cricket writing in his country at the moment, as is James Wallace, who's talked about sort of that visceral thrill and, and fear, I suppose, that's inherent within fast bowling. There's a feature there with Issy Wong and Joe Harmon. Issy's the, 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 the fast bowler that everybody's talking about in England right now in women's cricket, whether she can be the first bowler to hit 80 mile an hour. So that's, uh, that's all part of the front half of the magazine, the big special there on fast bowling. They're also doing an investigation into the science of fast bowling, the physical properties that you need, uh, which is a very particular kind of physical structure. Uh, there are only so many humans who've been able to do it. So John Stern, the, the kind of spiritual editor of the publication, has tracked down John Snow, who's the, the fast bowling great, who we hear about in terms of the early 70s, the only one from England who was able to, to try to rival uh, Dennis Lilly and, and Jeff Thompson when they were roughing up England. He was the one giving it back, and he doesn't do a lot of interviews, so um, he's been... Uh, located by John Stern to, to talk about fast bowling and all that it means. Uh, the editor-in-chief, Phil Walker, has, uh, shifting gears, he's writing about leg spin and the lonely art that it is in England's complex relationship. <laughs> a classic it. Phil, he's, he's like, it's a fast bowling issue, so I'm going to write about yeah, leg spin. Yeah. What, what Phil's also done, uh, I, think, I think sometimes we skip over the editorial he writes each month at the front of the mag. It's a beautiful piece he's written, the editor's letter this month, which relates to how wonderful it's going to be next Next summer when India are in England and we kind of have that colour and movement of experiencing cricket in the flesh with lots of other people, which is such a massive part of uh, what we've missed this year. So, uh, yeah, read Phil at the front of the mag and also read his feature on leg spin. As far as spin goes, they've also got Rangana Herath uh, talking about his 
fascinating career, which I love. Uh, massive Rangana Harath fan. He's probably top 10 in, in final word faves and will be for a very long time to come for the ridiculous career he had after the age of 30. Tanya Aldred's also got an interesting piece in there too in the, in the diversity series looking at why is it that there's only one openly gay male cricketer in all of England in the professional ranks. Stephen Davies, of course, who came out in 2011, nearly 10 years ago. And yet that's it. I mean, it doesn't make sense that there'd only be one man in, in the entirety of the professional England game who's gay, yet no one else has, has taken that step. So Tanya's taken some time to explore that topic, Yeah, again, as part of this diversity story that they've been telling in the magazine each month over the last six months. And there's uh, quite a special piece from Adam Holyoke remembering an innings uh, of brilliance from his brother Ben. Uh, Ted Dexter's in the mag as well, talking about Zach Crawley. And uh, there are the usual columnists like Adam Collins, <laughs> who you may have heard of and, and, and may enjoy the work of, um, Andrew Miller, Izzy Westbury, etc. And Neil Manthorpe's in there trying to unravel what's going on in South Africa, which keeps changing as fast as we can put out episodes about it. So I said uh, at the start there's a deal for final word listeners it's the same deal we've had for uh, for the last few months which is pretty straightforward really if you sign up at bit.ly forward slash wcmtfw so bit.ly forward slash wcmtfw you get 44 percent off which is a, a steal on what is the best cricket magazine in the world you'll get six editions for 10 quid or for 15 dollars i use the digital edition myself i mean i get the the hard copy of the magazine but i've got to be honest i mean the way i read wisdom cricket monthly is on my on my ipad it's very user-friendly very easy to engage with so if you're outside of the uk or you know or for whatever reason you don't actually want to get the hard copy magazine this is a fantastic alternative bit.ly forward slash wcmtfw for six months of the best cricket magazine in the world wisdom cricket monthly don't worry about remembering the code it's in the show notes hi i'm matt renshaw and you're listening to the final word podcast this is the final word and uh, we're very pleased to welcome to the show fiona bolan who's just released clearing boundaries the rise of australian women's cricket welcome to the show fee Thanks. I um, feel very honoured to be on the final word. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's quite got to the honours stage yet, but, <laughs> uh, but Adam and I know you from press boxes all over the joint and lots of um, women's games, particularly over the years. So I'm curious with this book that, you, that you've worked on and put out, were you, did you get interested in women's cricket through your work or were, did you want to work on women's cricket because you already had an interest? How, how did the chicken and egg work there? I would say it was probably more my work that pushed me into it initially. I came from a rugby league background prior to starting at the Daily Telegraph, where I was when I was covering cricket. And, um, yeah, the WBBL being on and the Australian tours that were happening, I ended up sort of moving around in those circles a lot more than I had previously. I've I've always loved cricket, as any good Australian does, and... (laughs) Yeah, it was nice to to really get into the women's game. So at the Telegraph, I was the women's sports editor there. So it was about covering all sports in the women's space and uh, cricket was certainly one of the leading ones there. So we gave it a lot of coverage and it was nice to get out of the office and into the press boxes there and um, and learn sort of the, the back workings of a whole new sport. 
So the book that you've put together is it's a it's a pictorial history and and a written history of women's cricket in Australia right from the beginning you know from the 1800s on it's it's a massive project it's a big sort of layout coffee table book it looks wonderful and it's come about through collaboration with the Bradman Museum so fill us in on the background of that how how all that got started and uh, how the project got underway so it, it came about from the Holman collection of photographs that Wally Edwards purchased. So it, it's a, a lost collection of Fairfax photographs that sort of made their way around the world and, and back to Australia. So mm. Wally purchased those and then donated them to the Bradman Museum. So among these 42,000 images were a few thousand women's images that hadn't been seen before. And so the Bradman Museum have been working with Churchill Press to produce a coffee table book and then I came on board to produce the words and it's been a growing project as the history of women's cricket is it's so expansive and as we started to realise how much had gone on, it got bigger and bigger and needed to add in more achievements and more moments and um, Massive group effort, to be honest, between you'll see Matt Bonds's name on the, the front cover there as well, who worked tirelessly researching with uh, Rena Hoare at the Bradman Museum to produce what is one of the most, if not the most, thorough histories of Australian women's cricket. It goes over more than 100 years and hopefully hundreds of years more. It's one of the things that we find with this show when we do a lot of digging about cricket history and there's this real frustration that with the earlier part of the women's game, you know, really only going back 20 or 30 years, it's even, it, it's so hard to access. The footage isn't out there. There's no way that a, a Robble into channel can come and show you clips from the 1970s because they don't exist. And as you go back further than that, the photographs aren't there. The, the, the histories aren't there. The information is, is so patchy and so partial and, and so hard to find. So what's the significance of this treasure trove of photos coming to light and, and being able to to give so much more access to those periods of time? Well, I guess it, it really does fill those gaps that have been there for so long now. Um, and like I say, people just don't realise how rich the history is of women's cricket. And it's been continuous since those first games in the 1880s where teams were sort of cobbled together, I suppose. But it shows the persistence and the passion that exists in women women's cricket and um, how committed all those women have been to pushing it along and there's been men in there too who were doing it. And I just think it's wonderful that someone would be able to pick up one book and learn all these things. At the launch just the other week there were former players saying there's things in there that they didn't know about and it mm. um, allows them to sort of fill their knowledge of what went before them. So it, it's not been done before and it, it's the first of its kind and I think it's an important part in Australia's overall cricket history. It was interesting particularly to me that we have this idea of, of history as being this linear progression of improvement, uh, whereas when you look at really early women's cricket, sort of before the Victorian era, uh, there's actually a lot more liberation for women to be involved in organised sport and it's much more of a normal thing and then it becomes more restrictive during that sort of Victorian English era that we, in our current era, assume that that's how things always were beforehand, but it's not really like that at all. No, it, it's 
it ebbs and flows throughout the years. And I, I think that's what I found quite incredible was that persistence to, to keep going and to bring it back to the progress it had made. You know, things like wars interrupted seasons and, and things went on hold for a number of years, but then there was always a group there ready to bring it all back. And I think what I found most incredible was, you know, we talk now about thousands turning up to a match or, you know, the 86,000 at the MCG at the start of this year, but, you know, there was 70-odd thousand at a World Cup final in India and if you go back to the start of the 20th century, there were thousands turning up to matches there, both here and in England. So these are very achievable feats that can be continue to grow and it, it's um, not unusual that people want to watch women's cricket. Yeah, I was noticing that um, there was a reference to to 9,000 people coming to the first day of a test at Adelaide in the 1940s, I think it was, and, you know, there are days of test cricket in the men's game these days where you wouldn't get 9,000 people show up. You, know, you could go 20 years in the UAE and you wouldn't get 9,000 people to show up. So what what do you think is, is, is that to do with an earlier era being sort of more willing to embrace whatever was on as entertainment? You know, it, it's there, you go to it. Like what's the, what's the difference between that time and this? I think... That's probably a very accurate assessment that people went to watch sport and they weren't discerning between gender back then. It, it was just, oh, let's go watch. I like cricket and there's cricket on, so let's watch it. There was also a period where post-war and, and people were struggling a bit more and it, it was cheaper to go watch women's cricket or it was free to go watch women's cricket. So they turned up again. They, they just wanted to watch the sport being played and played at a good level. And that's what the women's game was providing. So I think that these days the same attitude is there. There's there's so much sport on offer for us, but people are still happy to go um, as long as it's a good spectacle. And I think what we've seen from the women's game today, that's definitely what we have. I was particularly interested reading about the Gregory sisters. Uh, we've got Nellie, Louisa, Alice and, and Gertrude in, in the what, late 1800s who are the sisters of Sid Gregory who played for Australia and how a lot of the time when you see cricket developing in a certain place, it'll come down to there being one family who really gives it the push where like you've got the Joyce family in Ireland or, or the Khan sisters in Pakistan sort of in the 1990s. And so you go all the way back to the, is it the 1880s when it's the Gregory sisters who are playing at a much better standard than everybody else around them um, and, and dominating these early women's matches that are being put on as exhibition games? Yeah, it was certainly a family affair for them. And, um, you know, even back then in the 1880s that we're talking about, no one in the family was saying, oh, well, you're female, you can't play cricket. And they take people with them. So, you know, we see that they, they come back maybe a decade or so later and they're all married, but they're still mm. getting back out on the cricket pitch. And, and it's from there that the game grows and clubs start to form, you know, in the early 1900s. And, and that's, you know, you talk about foundations for growth and, and that's the very first one that, you know, could still hold true today. It's those, those great players that keep pushing the game forward. 
I was also very glad to see Peggy Antonio getting a run. Um, Adam and I have talked about her on the show quite a bit, looking at her history. She's she's a leg spinner in the 1930s. She's of Chilean ancestry. She's a, the daughter of a Chilean dock worker in Melbourne, picks up leg spin bowling, working at a factory. And she she tours England in 37 and, and she's the driving force behind Australia's first test win. She's a fascinating player for all of those reasons, but she's someone that you looked at in some depth and retired very young, played six test matches and then said, that's it, I'm, I'm done, retired at 20 or 21. Um, at that sort of, in that sort of era, how, did, how do they suddenly create a test player when there's not the organised structure to, to work up through club level and all of the rest of it like you would in the men's game? I think it's... You know, so so often in the women's game, it was people just turning up to have a crack, you know, something that, oh, you know, I'll see what that's like and finding out that they had talent and from there having the opportunity to play. And I think, you know, so often that can be the blocker, the opportunity, but all throughout the history of women's cricket, it's so fortunate that there was some kind of opportunity, the factory teams that were formed back then just to play against each other simply because someone had a, a passion for cricket and let's put some on, we'll, we'll just throw some teams together. And I'm glad you you get Peggy Antonio in there for yours and Adam's benefit. And, you know, there's so many throughout the whole course of the book like that, you know, Faith Thomas, who had such a milestone mark for the game, but, you know, she only played a couple of games herself. It's great, like women's cricket just thrived off those little moments and, you know, I think the players today are very fortunate that those people existed. It's always interesting going back to women's test cricket starting in 1934 and, and usually people are very surprised that it started that early and that first tour when England came to Australia, they they made they raised money off that tour. They got enough people coming through the gates to to fund it. Um, they set up the return tour in in 1937 to to go back over there. And at the same time, these players are all having to put really significant sums of their own money into actually playing for their countries. Is, that's right. Yeah, and they did for so long. Like it, it wasn't until sort of the 80s or, or late 80s, early 90s, that sponsorship started filtering into the game. And, you know, there were bits and pieces around the place, donations and whatever else, but quite often it, it was just the players having to fund it and do fundraising to get there off their own back. You know, it, it just speaks again to that passion and commitment that um, kept the game going for so long and brought it back when it did have those dips uh, over the decades. It's um it's interesting you've got the photos in there of Bradman meeting the teams in in the late forties when when England's touring and and this is this project's coming about through the Bradman Museum as well as as we mentioned it's it's interesting where he's a character who's sort of known for his political views as a stick in the mud in a lot of ways but he's he's actually quite he's quite progressive on the score of that that women should be playing cricket um and even even just that I noticed in the little foreword sort of quote from him at the start of the book where where he's 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 including women in sport even though he's he's a man coming from an earlier age where he's saying that you know the, the the way that an athlete should be you know is to reach his or her best potential is to do a b and c it's it's interesting that he did have 
a more forward-looking uh, view than you might have expected from DG Bradman. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and lucky he did. You know, you need people like that backing something that you're trying to make successful. And I think you can also look at the likes of someone like Jack Haywood who, who didn't necessarily have, you know, stick-in-the-mud views but was willing to sort of put his money behind the women's game and, and sit down with um, Rachel Hayhoe at the time and and pull together a World Cup that, that continues today and, and was the first of its kind in the game. So, you know, it's across the board. I don't think it exists just in cricket either. It's across the board in women's sports still today that you do need names like that willing to, to back it and it can make such big change as well. When we're researching, we're often frustrated when we look up the scorecards and you have this match that's really nicely positioned and then it's a draw because they only play three days. And this goes on for decades and decades. <laughs> were you able to, to dig out, like, why were all of the games three days? <laughs> Could you? <laughs> I think it was just purely a time thing. It was uh, get it over with and, you know, they weren't really willing to commit the extra day. And, and it wasn't until sort of a bit later on that they they tried the four-day test to get results because it was so frustrating, these tied matches and, and teams could just dig in um, and, and play for nearly two days their first innings and then it was already done for. So, yeah, it was just that commitment to really backing it and it took a while for that to happen and someone or a nation to be willing to to put on the extra day. The photo that stood out to me most is there's a shot of Betty Wilson bowling in the nets at Lords, and there's this it's a close-up right at the bowling crease and you can cap you can sort of feel that the power and the energy through the crease and the the momentum that she's got coming into that that action I, I'm guessing there must have been a lot of hard decisions to make about what pictures to include and so many you had to leave out I think so and um thankfully that didn't fall solely on my shoulders the the guys at Churchill Press were the ones along with Rena sifting through all those photos to make the connection and it, and it was about creating the story that flows through the book as well so I think the hard decisions came down to you know how do we keep progressing this history as a, a, a proper read that flows through and um, acknowledging the the important moments and uh, spells and, and stands that happened throughout, you know, time after time. You know, Betty Wilson, what an absolute pioneer and star of the game. You know, she's definitely one that these these players today stand on her shoulders. Um, so, you know, I think to be so fortunate to have so many to choose from, which is so rare in women's cricket, was a wonderful experience for everyone to go through and and try and define a history throughout those pictures. It's interesting the the way you write about it, there's there is this sort of like we talked about, this this energy or enthusiasm for the game through the thirties and forties. And then my reading of it is the it, there's a long sort of slow period that starts and it's really from the fifties probably up until into the early two thousands where there's not much there's not much energy sort of behind the game there's, there's no there's no no promotion uh, there's there's nothing pushing it out there the games get pushed out to sort of backwater grounds and don't get to have the prominence and it it's it's hard to get audiences in do you have a read on why that happened or is that just 
is it too broad and too vague to try to answer? It's it's possibly too broad. I think there's so many factors that would filter into it. I think the initial deep happened post-World War II um, where, you know, the, the money just wasn't there to, to fund tours anymore. England was recovering. Mm. Australia itself was recovering. So... So that pushes the game into a, a slow period. And then you're probably looking at, at some professionalism that's starting to come into the men's game as well, more investment, more interest, and, and those divergent paths make it hard for women's to, to get itself back right. up when, you know, purely speaking on my opinion and my read of it, I would say, you know, that's that's certainly one influencing factor. So the competing demands that, that it's it's harder to get access to grounds and things like that when there's actually money to be made out of them in the men's game? Yeah, and I think you, what you see later is, is the governing councils start to merge because it was quite often there was the international women's, there was yep. the Australian women's, and then they start to realise how far apart the men's and women's games have become and they need to have that one governance to try and, and bring it back and it's been a slow process but we're starting to get there now. That single governance issue, to me, it's always seemed like a very mixed blessing. The ICC swallows up the the women's equivalent in two thousand and five, and so there's the there's the appeal of being under the you know part of the inside the bigger tent. I guess the the metaphor might be that there might be more resources, but there's also the loss of control that goes with that. You know, the women's game isn't in charge of its own destiny anymore, and there's a period from from sort of oh five to to maybe twenty thirteen or fourteen or so when Srinivasan was running the BCCI where they were basically just squashing women's cricket they weren't interested in it um, whatsoever that that's changed thankfully but it did show how arbitrary it could be and that's also sort of the period where women's test cricket gets basically squashed for good because the boards don't don't want to pay for it so what's what's your view on like how much is good and how much is bad out of the the two the two organizing structures um merging does that is that ultimately for the good of the game or does it have there are certainly risks that come with it there's always yeah there's always going to be risks and there's always um a, a downside to the the upside that you're getting so the upside that um, was received was a lot more money to work with. Um, they started to play on better fields, so their perform and their performance gets better, and they start to get paid a bit more, and they can train, and so the women's players are, are starting to put on a more entertaining product. And it, it's this slow cycle that feeds in, and the, the you know the downside being that um, there's not many women in the room when decisions are being made, and, and mm. not many people with that. Not only knowledge, but the the passion and drive to push it forward. Someone with commitment. So they were lucky to have Belinda Clark in there, who you know what a phenomenal person in general with managing her playing duties as well as her administrative duties for so long, and then the success she had um, as an administrator after. And Australian women's cricket was very lucky to have her there. So I think. Yeah, it probably gets to a point now where we see organisations are starting to reappoint women's specific governance yeah. within their organisation, which is a good thing. But then again, the ultimate goal is to still reach single governance where both games are thought about 
in the same manner and, and in the same thought where if we're going to do this, does it apply to the women's game? And if we're going to maybe push the women's game that way, how does it affect the men's? And it's all one thing. Uh, there's still a way to go there. So hopefully in our lifetime we can see that. <laughs> but <laughs> I think, yeah, it, it's, you know, it, it's definitely a good with the bad. You sort of look at the last 10 years or so and the 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 upshoot is remarkable in some areas and that's reflected in the book where you, very, very quickly things go from being, you know, very low-key tournaments that aren't getting much backing or attention to, you know, what we saw earlier this year at the MCG. It's a dramatic chapter of the story. Oh, the, the book wasn't um, originally going to have the World T20 included in it. It was meant to be released late last year. And so Rena decided that it absolutely had to include the World T20 moment because it's really a pinnacle moment for the women's game in Australia and even internationally. We were all at the mm. um, World Cup in 2017 in the UK at Lords when it was sold out and that was an incredible moment as well as an incredible match. But I think to see Australian audiences embrace the women's game the way they did was just a real sort of line in the sand of, okay, this is this is where we've got to and there's no turning back. Let's keep pushing forward with it. That's the the upbeat and, and happy side of it. The other part that, that someone pessimistic like me thinks about is you, you, you go back to that idea of, you know, thinking of history as being this series of linear improvement when actually it's not. There are times when I'll, I'll look around the world of women's cricket and there are some countries in the ICC where um, a lot of people are still actively quite hostile to women even playing sport, um, particularly sort of Bangladesh, Pakistan. There are countries with no funding for women's cricket you know Sri Lanka and the West Indies have very little funding despite having good players you've got so you've got countries that are pretty much broke uh, there's this there's this optimistic future for women's cricket in in a couple of the countries that have most of the money but it doesn't seem that bright elsewhere and and then you look at the only tournaments to be postponed thanks to COVID, have been women's tournaments, push the 50-over World Cup back, push the 20-over World Cup back, the men's tournaments go ahead, hell or high water. Do we have grounds for optimism um, more broadly or, or, or should we be more circumspect before being optimistic? Well, I like to think we can be optimistic and, um, you know, it's, as I've said, there's always been people in the game willing and able to push it forward um, after those slow moments. So I'm sure they're still around now. And I just hope that 2020 is the the only lull point and it's not a, a five, ten-year lull as we've seen in the past. I think the funny thing about COVID is it, it really was an opportunity to kind of reset how sport was managed and how women's versus men's sport was managed um, and it probably went the wrong way where, you know, as you would assume, women's is the easy one to cut and forget about. Let's get the men's up and running and that's the important thing, whereas um, it, it could have been a rebalance of let's get some more investment into the women's because, in fact, those competitions were easier to get up and running post-COVID, mm. but, but they became the afterthought. So I would like to hope that, that once everything settles down after COVID that we will 
pick up where we left off and, and keep going. It, it may have been a, one step backwards. I'm, I'm really hoping it wasn't more, but I think there's plenty of people out there ready to fight for it. Well, you've done your part with this book because when the history is there, um, it's a lot harder to deny it. It's a lot harder to to sweep things away or, or talk about it as though women's cricket is a recent invention when you can, you've got the receipts. You can say, okay, this is how far back it goes. Absolutely. Um, and I think that was the whole point and purpose. I know for Rena Hoare it was certainly a... Um, uh, a real passion project and something that she wanted to do for the women's game to to show that it exists and it has existed for a very long time. So, yeah, hopefully everyone can see that now and if they if the deniers pipe up, we can hit them over the head with this massive coffee table book. <laughs> That is the advantage to, to having a, sever- a multiple kilogram book. Um, yeah. <laughs> Only in hardcover, never wh- to be released. Where can people find it? We might as well let them know. So you can um, order copies through the Bradman Museum, through the web- their website, and it will be in all online bookstores and in the bookshops, and it's a perfect Christmas present. <laughs> It is. You can you can get my book and your book. You can put them together. What a combo that would Absolutely, be! Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The cricket lover will be well looked after this summer. <laughs> Clearing boundaries is the book. The rise of Australian women's cricket. Fiona Boland, thank you very much for joining us on the final word. Thanks so much, Jeff and Adam. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamonis, and you're listening to the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Fee Bolin uh, for taking some time to talk to us and for putting together uh, that beautiful-looking book. Jeff, a, a part of your conversation revolved around optimism and, and women's cricket around the world. We're kind of at the end of the stretch now, aren't we? The, the women's internationals have been run and won uh, between Australia and New Zealand. We've had the big bash. I mean, we aren't even at December yet, so there'll be more cricket hopefully later in the summer, of course, the WNCL and so on, and then Australia will go to New Zealand. But as far as the, the health of the women's game, you've been there at everything really over the last two months. How are you seeing it? I think that the... The WBBL was a triumph this year. The, the fact that they managed to get it together and managed to get it played. Uh, I think what worked really well was having it in one city and maybe there is an argument that may, that in future editions it might not be all in one city but it might be it might be in a couple of cities in one year and a couple in the next, something like that, because mm. it made it much more manageable as a tournament to not be travelling around all of the time. And obviously, if you're looking at sustainability and things like that, then, you know, having teams flying back and forth to Perth every other day and that sort of thing is something that could be avoided. So uh, I think the like that the, the positive of that was it showed CA's commitment to, to that tournament and making sure that it was played properly and, and run properly. So uh, that's the plus side. You know, the downside is something like the the 50 over World Cup not happening in February when it definitely could have happened in February, except that most of the member boards couldn't be asked putting the effort in or putting the money in to make sure it happened. Mm-hmm. I watch this space on that, isn't it, as far as how these women's tournaments um, play out uh, in the post-COVID world. Uh, Jeff, uh, that's it for another edition of The Final Word. By the time I talk to you again, uh, with the recorders on at least, uh, later in the week for story time, hopefully uh, I'll be, well, maybe not in the same time zone as you because I'll be in Perth, but I'll be in the same country as you, which will be a bit of a novelty for the first time in a long while. So I'm looking forward to that. Thanks to everybody uh, for listening to the show as always. Thank you to CBA super and so wisdom cricket monthly for always having our backs likewise our brilliant patrons uh 
everyone who, who's hit the button and, uh, and been there uh, with us on this ride. Uh, we're enormously grateful. Uh, looking forward to what's ahead in the Australian summer. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions. This show's made by uh, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards who run the show there at that brilliant production company, badproducerproductions.com. And we're edited expertly each week, twice a week by Dave Collins. So thank you to DC and Jeff. Thank you to you for your support uh, through this uh, rather arduous last couple of months. I've tried to uh, get to the finish line and get to, to get to Heathrow, and uh, hopefully, uh, thanks to the, the 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 yards that have been put in, we're going to have a very enjoyable summer. I will cross my fingers and toes that I will be speaking to you then. But uh, we'll be speaking to all of you via the podcast mechanism <laughs> in the very near future. Until next time, bye.